welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of Gone Girl, starring Rosamund Pike, Ben Affleck, Carrie Coon, Kim Dickens, Patrick Fugit, Neil Patrick Harris, and Tyler Perry. Based on the novel by Gillian Flynn, directed by David Fincher, released in 2014 to critical and financial success. Kurt, we're here doing this because it's February, so might, might as well do some twisted romance stuff. Uh, you know, we're already doing a little bit of that in, in other areas, but... You dropped something in our last review of Eyes Wide Shut that you have a secret passion for the romantic thriller subgenre. So please do explain. Oh, for sure. And uh, yeah, it is fitting. We happen to be recording this on what many people call Blue Monday, supposedly the most depressing day of the year, uh, which I didn't <laughs> know about until today. Uh, only way this mo- this episode could be more fitting is if we were re- reviewing Blue Valentine, but close enough. There's a... Uh, there's a million movies about couples who fall in love, um, but not as many movies about couples who fell in love and then fall out of it. And I just love dark romance movies like that because they often, more often than not, they have some of the best acting and writing of a given year. Like Marriage Story from uh, 2019. It's a good movie, but the acting where Adam Driver goes into the, the rage and depression that comes along with going through a divorce is just riveting to watch or revolutionary road which is one of my favorites perfectly casting jack and rose from titanic probably the most popular screen love story of all time and in this movie they're years into a marriage they've stopped enjoying each other's company and it's just brutal to watch it's like the difference between a western and a revisionist western sure you can have clint eastwood shoot 50 guys and fistful of dollars but it's so much more fascinating to me to watch unforgiven examine the violence like that take that we take for granted in movies like this, where you have him say, remember when I shot that guy in the mouth and his teeth came out the back of his head? That's one That's one way uh, I look at the dark romance movie versus, say, you know, your average rom-com. No, no, I hear you, man. And, uh, I, you know, I was joking with Chris on the Le Diabolique review that there was a sweet spot between, like, 1984 and 1997 or 98 where this kind of movie just got made constantly. The adult drama romantic thriller yeah. gone awry. I mean, fatal analysis and shattered and broken and basic instinct, fatal attraction, and, you know, all of those kind of movies. There's just a billion of them. And most of them are centered around, you know, a crime element or uh, could it be a crime? I mean, you think of something like Body of Evidence, which is a terrible film with really good actors <laughs> in it and, and a singer uh, named Madonna. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're all built around the same kind of thing, right? You, you've nailed it. It's the end of a relationship or the unraveling of one and then what makes that interesting. And you, you nailed on a big one there with Revolutionary Road. That's a personal fave of mine, too. I would put that in the same category as something like American Beauty where you're oh, watching yeah. – people unravel and you get to watch actors kevin spacey chris cooper annette benning just really and, and west bentley too just really chew each other apart uh through a lot of dialogue and and all that so i i love this kind of stuff too um you know i think it's fitting that the last kubrick movie was kind of this um mm-hmm. eyes wide shut and you know people can go listen to our review of that not as well executed as some of the others we've listed tonight and uh, i dare say not as well executed as this one either um so i gotta know your background with gone girls specifically before we, we get into the movie 
Well, it's uh, it was weird. I was thinking about it every whenever I watch this movie. I always think about how I I can't really remember a time before it. It feels like I I, I know that I went into this movie completely blind. If if I I seem to recall like. I never even heard of the movie until like the week I saw it, where all of a sudden I saw like a poster, someone posted saying this, you know, this new David Fincher movie. Like, there's a new David Fincher movie. Like, it was, it was that kind of surprising. Um, but I never saw, uh, I never saw one trailer. Uh, I think I saw the one poster, which is you know the back of Ben Affleck against a lake or, or something. Uh, I didn't know, I didn't know anyone who was in it except for Ben Affleck. I, I don't think I even ever heard of Rosamund Pike, even though I know I, it turns out I, I did recognize her from Die, she was a Bond girl and Die Another Day. Yeah. But, uh, but no, I went into this movie, uh, uh, completely blind, which is a rare thing. And, uh, which is interesting because I listened to the commentary from Fincher and he talks about the marketing of this movie throughout and how obviously crucial it is to keep, the, like, he talked with Fox a ton about keeping some of these secrets in the second act. Um, a secret, and he said apparently that he, he specifically wanted to tailor the trailer to let to like specifically to let audiences think uh, one thing. So whatever experience those audiences had, I didn't have because I was in completely blind. Yeah, man, I, this one for me, um, I wasn't aware that Fincher was doing a movie of this or whatever, but I was aware of this story because my wife commuted to work for a, a number of years and we got her into audiobooks <laughs> and stuff like that just as a way to kind of, you know, pass that those time because, you, you know, drive time radio where we lived at the time was not great. And you can only hear the same Nickelback song enough and then you're done. <laughs> And so, um, you know, literally off of the description of it, um, she was like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Let's try that one. Because she and I are both big fans of true crime stories. Mm -hmm. And and the book very much is a true crime kind of story. And it's on the heels of the Lacey Peterson, Scott Peterson thing. And, you know, even years before, like O.J. Simpson and, and all those kind of things. Right. So being into that and, and liking those kind of podcasts and stuff, um, we thought, hey, yeah, you know, we'll like it. So she listened to it and said, oh, you got to listen to this. It's great. So I picked up the book and I mean, I blew through it cause it's, it's a real page turner and I thought, this is cool. And then I just Googling on the internet, I was like, yeah, they're making a movie of it. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, it's totally cinematic. Like I, I can believe that cause they optioned the rights to it quick after it came out. And then I found out David Fincher was making it. And my immediate thought was like, Oh Lord, <laughs> this is about to get real dark <laughs> because, uh, you know, Fincher has such a style and we could talk all day about him, but I think this film cousins really well in his oeuvre to a, a movie that people don't talk about enough. And I think it's the one called the game with uh, Michael Douglas and, and Sean Penn, which I think this one is a good cousin too. Like if you did those back in the day when you get the DVDs, you got two movies on the same one, like they'd yeah. be a good pairing in, in a lot of ways. And I got real excited about that. Edit. I was like, okay, David Fincher doing a true crime story. And then the first thing I heard him say was like, yeah, I wasn't interested in that at all. I, was, I wanted to do this, you know, commentary on media and saturation and, you know, our society and all this stuff. And I was like, well, this is going to be, you know, an interesting thing. So I found that Gillian Flynn was adapting her own screenplay, which, you know, sometimes that can work, sometimes not. Interesting to know she was really involved throughout the picture. Usually, you know, the screenwriter turns it in and then the director and 40 other people kind of rewrite it on the set uh, as they go. But he had her there the whole time, you know, doing stuff because apparently they really hit it off, um, which kind of scares me about what kind of person she is. Um, <laughs> because I love Venture, but man, he will take something you love and make you hate it. Yeah. That seems to be like his lot in life is I'm going to make you hate space movies. I'm going to make you hate buddy comedy. 
comedies, cop <laughs> movies, seven. Uh, I'm going to make you hate friggin' Facebook, the social network. Uh, and I'm going to make you hate marriage, yep. you know, <laughs> whatever. And, uh, when my wife and I walked out of the theater, seeing this together, we both looked at each other like that was, that was messed up. Right. Are you okay? Can we get some ice cream or something? <laughs> that was, it was one of those. And, uh, but you know, it, it had left a lasting effect. And so I, you know, I certainly have, you know, strong memories of having seen it and I own it, uh, of course, and have owned it for years. So when you uh, dropped it in, in the string of things on the Ice Wide Shit show, I was like, oh, that's a perfect February show. So we, we definitely got to do it. And it's a good pairing, too, in the stuff that we've got this month. Uh, at least the, you know, three of the offerings are very much the kind of darker side of love. Late Diabolique is, you know, a gaslight story from the 1950s. It's a French film. And then Cruel Intentions is dangerous liaisons, but as, well, as Lindsay put it, high school, 50 shades of gray, you know, and all that. So I thought, well, this is a great one to kind of you can put in the middle of them here. So really interested to dig into this one with you. So Kurt, go ahead and tell folks what the, the plot of Gone Girl is. Spoilers hot, obviously, on this one. And folks, if you're not familiar with the twist in it, somehow you've avoided that. Uh, you might want to pause now, go watch it, because uh, Kurt's going to lay it all out for you. So please do give him the plot. All right, here it goes. Um, Nick and Amy Dunn are a married couple living in a small town in Missouri where Nick runs the bar with his twin sister, Margot. On their anniversary, Amy goes missing and Nick calls the cops, but doesn't seem all that concerned with actually finding her, it would seem. During the, this investigation, we flash back to Amy's diary covering their relationship, how it began, how they got married, and how they were happy for a while, how they lost her family's trust fund, uh, moved from New York to Missouri, and slowly but surely began to resent each other. In the present day, the police are positive Nick has killed his wife when they find nothing but evidence and also motive. As it turns out, Nick upped Amy's life insurance policy, was cheating on Amy, and in a stunning revelation by Amy's best friend in town, Amy was pregnant. In the diary, Amy reveals Nick went from resenting her to scaring her and is convinced that Nick wants to kill her. The police find this diary discarded in a furnace and it looks like a sure bet that Amy is dead, and then Nick killed her. We then cut to Amy driving down the road, uh, explaining how, of course, she's still alive, despised Nick for how he changed over their marriage, and how she went about framing him for her murder and plans to kill herself. Nick, realizing he's been set up by Amy, finds Tanner Bolt, a hotshot lawyer in New York, who believes every word of Nick's story and agrees to defend him, while Nick continues to prove his innocence seeking out former boyfriends of Amy's, like Amy, Amy's uh, wealthy stalker, uh, Desi Collins. Amy's long-term plan to frame Nick involved a nest egg of cash, which is stolen from her by a neighbor at a motel. She's left penniless and un unable to complete her scheme. She tracks down Desi and shacks up with him, who was very sympathetic and couldn't be happier to have Amy all to himself in a situation where she can't really leave. Nick then goes on TV for an interview to gain some public support and get word out to Amy that he knows what she's doing. However, the police manage to find more of Amy's traps for Nick, such as copious amounts of blood throughout the house, and Nick is arrested for her murder. Amy finds herself basically trapped by Desi in uh, this country mansion, and her solution is pretty simple. She gets Desi into bed and slashes his throat with a box cutter, and then in a stunning turn of events, Amy returns home and Nick is cleared of all charges. However, 
Nick, realizing he's married to a complete psychopath, wants to leave her and expose her entire scheme to the world, but Amy, for whatever reason, wants to stay with Nick and tells him that she's pregnant. The police and Tanner Bolt no longer have any stake in Nick and Amy's affairs, so Nick is on his own, figuring out what to do, and in a television interview where he plans to reveal to the world that Amy is a murdering psychopath, at the last second, he simply announces that she's pregnant. And they lived happily ever after. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that is the great uh, question we will get to at the end of this podcast is what do you think happens? We got to get get through all of it to start with. And I think that's a really good summary, Kurt. And I think we have to start and I just want to start with casting stuff here. You said you weren't familiar with Rosamund Pike other than you, you remember she was one of the Bond girls in, in Dying of the Day. Um, I sadly became aware of her in a movie called Doom. Um, anybody <laughs> has seen The Rock and Carl Urban do a first person shooter game adaptation. I don't recommend that film, uh, but she's in it as a scientist or something. Uh, so I didn't know who she was you know, from anything, but I know she's done a lot of other work. And then when she got cast in this, I thought, well, okay, that's an interesting choice. And I found out that she got cast because Reese Witherspoon is one of the producers on this thing. And she originally wanted to do this movie. And then for whatever reason, decided not to. And she was one of the reasons Rosamund Pike got it, but I could kind of see it. The only difference is, is I think Rosamund Pike's a, about a foot taller uh, than <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. And it would, it would have been a heck of a turn to see little Reese Witherspoon turn into this complete psycho, uh, you know, in, on this film. Uh, and I don't know that she could have done it. So I, I kind of liked Rosamund Pike in this though, because she has this coldness to her that just exudes from the Amy character. Well, she's, uh, she's excellent. She got the movies, uh, one Oscar nomination for, uh, for Best Actress. That was a very packed year. There were there's a lot of movies that got snubbed for a lot of awards. But anyway, she was she was up for an Oscar. She probably should have won. And she's excellent in this. And uh, like I said, I only saw her in. Uh, I actually I do I don't remember the movie, but I know I saw her. Turns out I guess I saw her in Doom. Um, but uh, the fact that you don't know, I didn't really know her, and probably most movie audiences don't know her and are looking at someone that they have they don't have any opinions of is perfect for this role because you can't – it's actually pretty similar to uh, uh, Kevin Spacey's casting in uh, Usual Suspects. Maybe audiences don't really – aren't familiar with him. So therefore, they ironically aren't making assumptions about whether or not this guy could be a villain. And that's uh, similar to Rosamund Pike. It's like no one can say, oh, I remember her as she was you know, the, the lead in this romantic comedy. So I like her. Or she was a bad guy in some crime movie. Right? So I don't like her. So going in completely blind, all you have is what <laughs> is what she uh, tells you, which is perfect for you know for a mystery story. Absolutely. And then on the other side of that, you've got Ben Affleck playing a complete you know dote headed douche, and that's not a stretch by any any uh, sense of the imagination. I mean, he's he's kind of made a living off of playing different versions of things Kevin Smith wrote for him <laughs> through the years. And I, I'm not dogging the guy. He's had a great career. He's made some really bad movies, uh, but he's also made some decent ones. And I wouldn't say he is a gifted thespian, but I think he has an everyman quality mixed with a little bit of like the George Clooney suaveness that you need in this character because – 
it really jumps out on the page in the book too that Nick is this dashingly handsome, complete moron of a person. You know, like he's not like a, you know, Jerry Lewis throw off or something, but he's just completely unaware of how stupid he is and how easily manipulated he is. And it makes him the perfect foil for somebody like Amy, who, as we find out through little flashbacks in this movie and definitely in the book, you know, her parents are wealthy because her mother writes all these books that are like young preteen, you know, Nancy Drew. They're not really Nancy Drew. They're kind of inspiring books about this girl named Amazing Amy. And it's all the crap Amy didn't do as a kid, but could have. And so she's kind of had to live in the shadow of that. So she's this, her own set of damage with that. And to have somebody like Affleck to play off of, I, my first thought when I found out he was in this, I was like, Ben Affleck is Scott Peterson. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. And then I saw him and I was like, yeah, you know, it kind of works. Yeah. Ben Affleck. I mean, at, at this point in his career, he was enjoying a very, very good comeback and uh, and a lot of uh, deserved praise. And it's interesting, though, this murder mystery uh, starring a guy who himself is a murder mystery filmmaker who, made, who wrote and yeah. directed uh, Gone Baby Gone. Uh, and he's perfectly cast in a movie that is so much about perception of the public he is perfectly mm -hmm. cast as a guy where an audience can take one look at him and assume he's a douchebag because yeah if this would be now this i think he's perfectly cast like in 2014 but if like this would be even better say in like 2005 at a time where probably everyone really hated uh yeah. ben affleck but i think enough people like actually i remember in 2014 a lot of people who hadn't seen you know the films he directed they were still not a fan of his so they were they were doing exactly that, and I think Fincher knew exactly what he was doing casting this guy because he's I think he is a good actor, he is charming, but uh, he like Fincher knows um, he is not the most sympathetic person in show business, and uh, that that is someone that audiences can make assumptions about, and it's and again it's perfect for that character. That's the other thing too is that Ben Affleck through his life and his relationships, he's dated some very famous people, you know, and has been in the public spotlight and has been judged for what he did and didn't do and all of this kind of stuff. And he's lived that life and the paparazzi and all of that stuff. So he can kind of relate to that and give us some of that stuff where, as you say, Rosamund Pike isn't as known. So we don't come in with all these preconceived things like we would with Reese Witherspoon or, you know, Julia Roberts or whoever with her, she's a blank. So you get to just sort of see her un unfurl. Affleck has lived some of this. He hasn't been accused of murder, thank goodness, but you know, he's been accused of a lot of things and in public and he's been smeared a few times and he kind of knows how to live with it and deal with it and do that. And that's why I think it's neat. To, and it's, it's so important to have those two together. And then there's the third piece of what I call the triad of the leads here. And, and we can't miss this enough. Carrie Coon steals so much of this movie and is so awesome as Margot. And you talk about somebody I did not know from anything until I saw her in this. And I was, I was blown away by her performance and just think she is a, an unbelievably talented actress. Oh yeah. She, she, she really did stand out because I, I, it was one of those things like, I can't remember the name of the guy who was like the interrogator from zero dark 30. Uh, I, but I just remember seeing a trailer and seeing that guy and going, "Who the hell is this guy? Where, where? Like he seems, seems so cool. It's like, where the hell did this guy come from?" And that's You're exactly like Jason Clark. Jason yeah. Clark, that's right. And, and I felt the exact same way watching Carrie Coon because she was so good and so funny and compelling. And and uh, I think I, I mean I might be wrong. I think she was like in her late thirties, maybe possibly early forties yeah. when she did this. So it was, yeah. it's kind of like you know Sam Jackson, uh, you know, showing up in Pulp Fiction when he's you know forty six. Like, well, where the hell has this guy been? Uh, 
you know, mm-hmm. his entire career. And yeah, she is she's so good in this. And she's of course gone on to do some great stuff afterwards. No doubt hundred percent because of this movie. Oh, no, totally. And and Carrie Coon herself is she's only in her late thirties now. So she was in her, you know, early to mid thirties doing this and hadn't really done a lot of things at this point. Again, another one of those, let me find somebody who's funny. She's kind of got that Aubrey Plaza type of humor, oh, yeah. you know, and is a perfect fool. And the idea of having this twin sister that is going to be so integral to the part, she's the best friend of the character. Cause in these stories, you always need that friend, you know, to help drive some of the plot. And she has great comic timing, but she also has a lot of empathy and she's totally on her brother's side, but she's not afraid to call him on his shit either. And that's what makes her so fun to watch. And I think, I mean, that opening scene where she's at the bar and it's 1030 in the morning and your brother (laughs) rolls in on his anniversary and he's like, you know, pour me a stiff one. And she's like, oh, well, it's going to be that kind of day. You know, (laughs) she clearly knows him. They have that closeness together. And I love that. I love it when you get into a movie like this, and you don't have to be told everybody's backstory. You can just kind of watch it be inferred on, on the screen. It's a lot of fun to see good actors pull that off. Oh yeah. Like they, they have chemistry, you know, just immediately. Uh, it's like the, just the way they're joking with each other. And I can't remember exactly what she says. She says something about like, Oh yeah, like it's fit. What is it? Their fifth anniversary. That gift is wood. Yeah. And so she says, well, here's what you should do. Here's some wood for you. It's like that. It, yeah. it, 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 ca- it perfectly captures the kind of jokes that you really only make with people that you've known your literally entire, your entire life. And, and th- they have great chemistry like that. Yeah, and they have they, they tell so much about the two characters too because they play board games together at that bar. Yeah, and he's always bringing in some random game. She's like, "Oh, I remember this. I hated it." She throws it into the bar, <laughs> you know. And and I like that that's their relationship. That that's how they bond. Is they you you can assume growing up they played a lot of board games together, being twins, and they. You know, that's just how they still communicate with each other. And, you know, it's it's neat to see. You know, I came from a family that we we played a lot of cards, played a lot of rummy and spades and hearts and all that kind of stuff together growing up. And, it you know, to get to do that still with people is is neat. So it was a neat relating point. But it's all just to get us started with he is miserable. This marriage is miserable five years in. And what we'll learn in the flashbacks is that they were happy. Things were great. And then the economy tanked and they both lost their jobs. And her parents got into a financial situation where she had to kind of give them, you know, her trust fund back, basically, except for a small chunk of it and sell her house. And they moved to Missouri because his mom was sick. And you see that like this rift grew between them and there's a lot of resentment and stuff. And if you just left it on the surface of that, you have the makings of a B lifetime movie. But then it's so much more, too, because when he comes home, she's missing and there's this stage scene and all of this stuff. And then you get into the cops showing up. And I had, I had a lot of fun watching Kim Dickens and Patrick Fugit play the two cops here, um, you know, because Patrick Fugit, I, I think most people would know him from Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe uh, you know, semi-autobiography, if you will. And uh, Kim Dickens is one of those actresses. When you see her, you're like, oh, yeah, that lady, you know, and <laughs> I, I thought they were good, too. I mean, I can't say enough about the cast here and just how well everybody is placed. Uh, but it's. I like how early on they're like, well, okay, let's try to take this, you know, normally and be, you know, be smart. Let's not just point fingers immediately. 
But when, you know, he doesn't know anything about his wife's blood type, he doesn't know this other random information, and they walk out of the room, and they're, like, accusing him. And then they look at each other and go, do you know your wife's blood type? No, should I? <laughs> and I, I, th- I thought that was fun. You know, it, it gives a, a humanizing element to them. Because so many times in these kind of stories, right, the cops are, like, immediately the flash, you know, light-pointing people. And they actually do legitimate police work here. Oh, yeah. Fincher's definitely, you know, he loves detectives in uh you know, half of his movies are, you know, there's always some kind of detective character. And these are two of the best. Um, Fincher talks about how he really wanted to go out of his way to make sure that they, even though it's, it, you know, it's small town Missouri, we're in the South. He wanted to make sure that they were not rubes. They were not, these are yeah. not some kind, just like they're still police. You still got to go through the same training and all that stuff. They're, they're very intelligent. And, you know, just because she has a, maybe a deep uh, Southern accent, she's uh, actually a stellar Detective and their role in this movie, they are trying to solve, you know, potentially a murder or disappearance case. But I love that this, again, so much of this is like there's a mystery story, but then Fincher's, you know, making these commentaries on marriage. It's like, I love that the cops in this movie, in order to solve this case, have to act almost like these these post-mortem marriage counselors in a way to find the motive. Because in in solving the murder, they have to wonder, so what would she have done that would have made Nick want to kill her? Mm-hmm. And they have to they have to go dark like that. So like when they find the finances and see that Amy is paying for the bar and Gilpin says, Well, that's humiliating, and they you know put that in the in the yes he did it column. Or uh when they talk to Nick about, so did you and your wife ever argue about money? Because I mean, we do all the time. And they like the, the brutal reality about that. It's like you know that's that, that's that's the main thing any couple argues about when you know things are bad is like money lack thereof. So Nick is having it thrown in his face by other people that on top of your wife maybe being dead, you two had a shitty marriage, and it's so unpleasant in a way only Fincher would do. Oh yeah, yeah, and we're talking about Kim Dickens as, as Detective Boney, and just the way that she so adeptly kind of lays those accusations in front of him. It's very much like the way a, a cop does. You, you watch enough investigation discovery TV and you see this. This is what the cops do is they like compliment you and they go like, Hey, you know, I relate to you. I get it. I argue with my wife about the cooking too or whatever. And then you go like, but I didn't buy, you know, a set of steak knives that are good at cutting through bone. Why, uh-huh. why would you do that, Nick? You know, and just sort of just <laughs> slowly, but surely, pointing the finger at him to see how he reacts to it too. Cause that's another thing cops will do is they'll get you comfortable and then they'll say something to sting you and just see what you do. And if you react weird and look, as we've said, this guy is kind of aloof and sort of, he's certainly hiding his own secrets. He's got his affair and you know, other stuff like that that he doesn't want out there. You know, they're, they're starting to see like, Holy cow, this, maybe this guy did it. And then you layer on top of it, the element of his wife is somebody who's living in a small town, but she's got famous uh, attention, you know, right? She's, she's famous adjacent. I guess you would say, right? Her parents are famous. So she's somebody that people would know. And if you said, Oh, the girl that inspired the children's books is missing. That would be something that, you know, headline news would run with forever. And then you introduce the Nancy Grace type character, <laughs> you know, who just fans the flames. And it's just the, the news cycle goes and you see all of that start happening. And what you realize is you, you watch Nick sit here and go like, holy man, holy cow, man, I am really in deep. I had no idea I was in this deep. And you watch, you get to watch him be legitimately scared that holy smokes, the system is about to point the guns at me. 
Yeah, the, yeah, the the way they play that because this this whole movie plays on this. It's like this is like a true. It's like you know, it's not a true crime movie, but it's like it, this is a murder mystery made by people that are all true crime fans, and it's directed mm-hmm. at, at an audience that are specifically true crime fans. So it's this idea that we all know how this works, and on the commentary, you know, Fincher talks about that. It's like Nick is doing certain things because he's seen them on TV. It's like like yeah. when he's so when he's acting kind of blasé, talking to the cameras. And people think that he's, you know, maybe being too blasé. It's like he's just being blasé because he's, you know, he's he's seen it enough times on TV. You know, he's, he's, you know, he thinks being natural and polite is the way to go. But other people are saying yeah. he doesn't seem that up. He doesn't seem upset though. Like that when he that that great bit. You know, you see it in all the trailers of him uh, smiling. <laughs> it's like, it's like he's really. I think it's just a complete reflex of when you're posing for a picture, you smile. But he doesn't realize that. Uh, that couldn't look more nefarious. Yeah, especially with that beautiful woman that wants to take that picture with him just randomly. And he's yeah. being polite. And, and we can't overemphasize the setting of this enough. She is from New York. Amy is from New York. Nick has gone to New York because he has a writing career. And that's kind of where you, you, know, you go. And so he was there. It's one of the places. And that's where he met her and all this stuff. But he has come back home to the Midwest, to the heart of America. You know, Missouri's not really the South, the way that like where I'm from or live right. now is the South. It's it's the South and the Midwest kind of mixed together, but it's middle America. It's, you know, people know, you know, your neighbors, you shake hands, you see each other at the grocery store. It's a place where you can go and kind of escape. I always remember John Mellencamp talking about how he loved living in his hometowns in Indiana because he could just be John and go to the gas station and people just go like, how's it going? You know, and not care, you know, that he was this huge rock star for four decades, you know, or whatever. And he was married to like some model for a little while. And she said that was the weirdest thing for her to just be able to go to town and nobody cared. You know, it was great. You know, people leave you alone. And that setting is so important to this story because he's just being polite the way he was brought up. You know, you smile when people ask you questions, you, you, you act nice and you say thanks to people. And, you know, he's got his New York in-laws going, Nick, you're not doing enough. You're not being emotional enough on the, at the press conferences. And he's going, I do care. I don't know what else you want me to do. I don't want to freak out in front of everybody and make it worse than it is. He's trying to remain calm. He's doing what he thinks he needs to do, but you see how the news takes it or the, the, you know, the commentary news, we should say. And it's like, you know, look at this man taking pictures with other women while his <laughs> wife is missing and all the, the hoopla. And you can just see it, right? You just see the cycle start to build. This movie just keeps throwing in these layers like it's a murder mystery. And then it's this, you know, commentary on marriages. But then this explore, this exploration of the media and public perception is uh, that was that was really surprising. And, and that's something um, Fincher's he's really good at. Like, of course, the you know, like like the social network is completely about yeah. perception. And uh, he's really good at that with uh you know, the, the, certainly those first couple seasons of uh, House of Cards, like like so much of all of Frank Underwood's plannings are just to do these things that will get people to do certain things on camera and boom, I've won. Just because people will react, the, the public will react a certain way. And, and, and you know, Fincher's all about that. He latched on to something in the social network that has been a recurring theme for him since. And it is this idea that the truth is never what you just necessarily see on the the face. It's not what you're presented every day on the television or in on the internet or whatever. It's the perception and public perception can be moved like the wind. And when it starts blowing against you, it's very, very hard to, you know, stand up in front of it. And, you know, very few normal people. And that's what Nick Dunn is supposed to be just a normal guy 
could live with that kind of spotlight on them. Right. And I think he's making a commentary about how much time Americans in particular spend watching and consuming this kind of stuff about celebrities or about, you know, people that are in the news for whatever reason and stuff and not realizing the damage we're doing necessarily to the pursuit of what actually is true. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing about him and, uh, and Margot. It's like, I don't think like Nick is kind of unaware of this. Like he doesn't strike me as a true crime guy, but Margot absolutely is like, she's the one she's yeah. the, I think she's the first person to say, you're about to go in front of those cameras. Or like, I think she says something like, you sure you want to wear that? Or it's like, like, like she, she, she knows that it's like, and the, sure enough, this is what happens is that literally the public perception, it does affect the cops. It tells the, you know, that like literally dirt, it, it, which is not a great, uh, strategy, but it ends up, you know, going, uh, Against Nick, as you know, as of course as as uh, planned, you know by uh, by Amy. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about how things start to to unravel and stuff here. So we've seen the flashbacks at this point, how things have started to disintegrate. Nick's kind of gotten lazy and distant. I mean, he's running the bar with his twin sister, and he's like teaching adjunct at a local college or something like that. But he's not, you know, doing anything really. He's just sort of existing. And they just kind of pass each other in the night. You know, they have intimacy, but there's nothing really to it. And then they just sort of, you know, go to boring chain restaurants together and it's you know it's not it's not the glamorous life they thought they would have with each other or even the one they started out having early on and that's the thing that i think fincher and, and it's really what gillian flynn is getting into is that in the mundaneness of relationships is where you really build your relationship and i mean i can say this is somebody who's been married 15 years at this point it, it, it's not the first year and it's not the fifth year it's it's all the the time in between and you know what what lasts is what you build after you get over the initial high and the initial drop you know from the euphoria and then you kind of come back to level and I think that's a lot of what the book is about. It's a lot of what this story is about, too. And Fincher's doing a good job of interlacing that with the ticking clock of this investigation going on and all the blood analysis and this, you know, all this business about the pregnant friend who is accusing him in public and the vigil and all this kind of stuff, you know, and, and it's neat to watch all that happen. And then you get the first real, real grenade to go off is Emily Ratajkowski shows up and he hasn't, he's having an affair with her and she was a student and it's like, and you know, he ends up screwing her in his sister's house. I'm like, dude, this dude is his own worst enemy, man. Yeah, I remember like the first time watching the movie. Before that happens, I'm I, I'm I'm kind of going in thinking I, I don't I don't think he did it. I don't think he's you know I don't think, I, I you know it's Ben Affleck. He maybe you know looks like a dick, but like I don't you know, I don't think he's that bad a guy. But then when she comes in, and it's like this you know she looks like she's you know like she looks like she's fifteen basically, mm -hmm. and and when she starts kissing him, it's like oh god, he's screwing one of his students. So that, that tells you, like, no matter what happened with Amy, he's definitely cheating on her. So that, again, that changes the, uh, that changes everything. Oh, yeah, totally. And and it makes you realize. And then Margot calls him on it the next morning when he's sneaking her out the house. And she's standing in the back hallway going, I cannot believe you. <laughs> like, you moron. Do you not realize what you're doing? She's you 12, you know. And he's like, <laughs> she's, you know, she's of age. And he's like, and she's going, you're 30, whatever, you know, and throwing <laughs> stuff at him. And I, I mean, but that's why I said I love that Margot character because she will call him on it. You know, she doesn't hate him. She's not going to pull her support from him. She's like, do you realize how bad this looks? 
if this got out right now, you think it's bad now. Fake Nancy Grace would crucify you for this. You know, there are, I mean, she's already making accusations that him and his sister have some weird relationship. You know, there's all that crap going on and, and it's, it's getting bad. And we got to talk about too, the trap of the treasure hunts. This is a game that they play. He and Amy have played together since they've been together. She will leave little clues for him to go find his way around. And we see a cute one where the, like the first year they both bought each other like the same sheets because they just know each other so well. And it's cute. Right. And now you see that it's become like this. Ah, now I get to go on a tour of all the things that I'm not anymore from her. You know, he <laughs> hates it, but it's also her. It's, it's her trap. You know, and it's it's wild to watch that come together. It's really clever. It's, it works out almost exactly like it does in the book, and it's super clever how it all works through here. And it's it's not only the words of hearing Rosamund Pike kind of you know overlay all that. It's the way it's visually done too. Fincher does a great job of sort of setting us up into those scenes and kind of culminating when he finds the big treasure trove in in the woodshed. Oh yeah, and we yeah, we got to talk about just overall the, the that diary is. Uh such a great bit of uh, film noir, the unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think about, I keep going back to uh, Usual Suspects, because The Usual Suspects and Gone Girl, two movies I will point to to be like, a film can make you believe anything, depending on how yeah. they tell it. Like, there's that bit towards the end of Usual Suspects where they make it look like Gabriel Byrne is Kaiser Soze. And just the way they edit it, the bit of music, the, the shot of, you know, Gabriel Byrne looking evil... It's like if the movie ended there, you would think because of the way that was structured, it's like that, you know, that uh, Gabriel Burns the bad guy. And that's exactly what happens here is we get this story of their perfect relationship that gets a little bit worse, a little bit worse. And then there's that the big moment is um, where he gets violent. And it's yeah. and then this this is I always call the this is the, you know, the is Deckard a replicant of Gone Girl. It's like, did he actually shove her, or is this where Amy is starting to concoct this mystery for you know whoever, whatever cop reads this diary? And that's that's kind of completely up to the audience. I like to think they had that argument they have, which is you know really sad about how he he says you can't have a uh, you know a kid to save a marriage, and she says save, and he realizes what he said. It's like the, the it's the moment where they realize they're they're at a real. They're at the, they're possibly at the bottom, and that, that it's it's all over. And then he you know, shoves her, and this is and Fincher he goes into complete you know Fincher dragon tattoo mode with the way he yeah. shoots uh, Affleck. He's got his fist balled up, and and she's talking about I think I'm actually scared of my husband. And that great shot of as he puts his hand on her face, we cut out of the di- out of the diary. And uh, at, when you're watching the movie that first time, it's like because the movie's telling you this, and it, they, she is so convincing. You think, oh yeah, I think he actually did it, and then of course it's like you know, I think it's like five minutes later. Of course, we find out that's not true. Yeah, I think the thing the thing about that in the diary part, and the way I have always read it is that every bit of it is made up. She has built that as a story. the The funny thing is, she she has some sort of a career, not in writing, but in something like publicity or something. It's, it's, they don't really go into it much. But Nick is the writer, and she plays it off as if he is this brilliant writer, like he's you know I don't know Holden Caulfield or something. And and then and he just hasn't been discovered yet. And the truth of the matter is, Amy is the much more gifted storyteller because she's a psycho. 
right? She's <laughs> living one life and building another fake life while journaling about it. And she's going back and retelling their history. And, you know, you know, the truth of, and this is also going back to usual suspects in every lie, there's a little bit of truth. There has to be right. Or else you'd never believe any of it. Yeah. And so she, you, you, we're, I think we can believe that the way she tells how they met and the cute things they did and the whole dropping the sugar on her face and all that stuff like really happened. And the way he proposed to her and all that, like all that is probably how it happened. It may be her memory of it, which is itself unreliable, but you know, whatever. It's what she remembers from that meeting. And then she turns the dials on. And now here's where it all goes bad because I've got to frame this guy. So how do you do that? You slowly but surely build it. And we see her like reading all these true crime books and stuff. And I mean, a couple of them, I recognized the titles of, and I was like, yeah, she's totally lifting that out of <laughs> real stories. And it, it works though, because she's so compelling in the way she tells those stories. And you're right. Fincher totally gives us this reason to believe, wow, maybe he did it. You know, the first time through is the only time that's, that works. You know, now you just watch the movie and sort of watch how all the traps happen, right? Same with usual suspects. Once you know the truth, what you're watching is, Kaiser Soze tell lies about other people. It's <laughs> just how good he is at it. And in this one, we're seeing the same thing. But the first time through, you're like, holy cow, did he hit her? You know, and what we learn is that she caught him with his girlfriend coming out of the bar doing the same little cute thing on the face. And it just set her off like to the 10th degree. Oh, yeah, that's that is. And then, of course, that comes when she's actually telling a story to another character and even though she's she's literally you know quote unquote, playing this other character from new orleans we can we know that this we can tell that she is being honest and that that was the moment where she where she did start to turn against him and she maybe a, a bit of an overreaction but um that's kind of then that's kind of the twist of this movie the first twist is that she's alive but and certainly by the end of the movie you realize well the second twist is he actually is she actually is uh insane is that she is a psychopath because the uh there's a lot of there's a handful of maybe logical gaps one could call out about the airtightness of the story from the, in the second half but when we see that great montage of her explaining everything that happened that she has set him up and that she hates him and that she's <laughs> she's she's you know she's she hates everything that's happened in their relationship she hates him for cheating on her we, uh, um, she was so, uh, so, um, so one might think that everything that happens in the rest of the movie, certain things she does might seem weird. But then when we see that her plan, she says it's as plain as day. Okay, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to call the cops this day. And she has it on the calendar, kill self with a question mark. And we see her that part of this montage of her plan is this image of her dead in a river. And that she is going to kill herself. She doesn't want to get away and change her identity. It's like she wants to die. And then, then that, and capping that off with that bit where she hits herself in the face with the hammer. And to me, that covers all the bases of any gaps. Cause the answer to any question of, well, that sound, that's kind of weird. Why would she do that? Well, the answer is, well, she's insane. Yeah. Yeah. She, she is plotting this whole thing, like to the point of like, okay. Fine then. And what you realize is that the, the cheating thing is actually the last straw. Yeah. She's mad at him anyway because of his lack of ambition, because he drug her to the middle of nowhere. And, and I don't think she was mad about, let's go and take care of your sick mother. It's the, and we stayed, she's gone. Yeah. 
why are we here? You know, and that he just doesn't seem to want to get out of it. And what she's not recognizing is that this guy is seriously depressed and she can't understand that. And she talks about how she became the cool girl for him. And she did all this stuff to doll herself up just the way you're supposed to. And I played this role. And that's when you realize like, this this woman is a sociopath because that's what sociopaths do. They play whatever role they think you want them to be, and then when it doesn't go bad, they blame you for you know not believing it enough, you know. And and that's the the real twist to this is is watching all of her machinations like befriend the local idiot. She's always pregnant and disable your toilet so you can get some of the pregnant urine, and you, that way you've got pregnancy results that'll help frame. I mean, she goes through an elaborate elaborate scheme to set this guy up, you know, and you'll get him in financial issues, do all this other stuff, splatter blood across the kitchen, clean it up badly like a man would, you know, I mean, all <laughs> the stuff that she does, you know, and, and then to the point of like, should I kill myself for it? I don't know. I, I gotta be honest with you. I always loved the fact that that was a question mark because yeah. I'm like, well, there would be a lot of questions about why is your hair cut? And why have you looked so different and, you know, all this stuff. And there's some of it that doesn't exactly work. Like we see her eating a lot of junk food and stuff, yeah. but they try to play it off that the week or so that she's missing before her, her plan goes awry and she has to, you know, call Neil Patrick Harris, his character up to be rescued. That like she's put on all this weight. And I'm like, no, she didn't. She ate a couple of cheeseburgers. You know, I was like, come on. Like she still looks like a model. You know, I was like, that's not, I don't know if that exactly works, but you know, whatever. We just set that aside. And and I think that's neat about this is that the twist, the big surprise, is in the middle. It's the second act. It's not the big reveal at the end. Yeah. And some movies would unravel at that point. You know, like, oh, so now we know. Well, now it's just, you know, we're just running out the time because I've seen that. You know, you've seen that happen. But this one, now it becomes even more intriguing. Like, well, do I want her to get away with it? Because he is such a scummy husband. <laughs> you know, you get to ask yourself that question. And I think only David Fincher could concoct a story where a sociopath can convince you that, like, I don't know, maybe he deserved it. Oh, yeah. And again, that brings to mind Gone Baby Gone, which was – and that movie ends with a certain – I'm not going to give it away, but it ends with a twist that plays on the audience going – is this the right thing to do or not? And depending on who you ask, some people say, no, that was the right thing to do. And some people will say, ooh, no, I wouldn't have done that. And it's, you know, and that's very much what Gone Girl is like. It very much depends on like, does he deserve all of it because he cheated and lied to her? And, uh, you know, what does she deserve for, <laughs> for what she did? And that's, you know, the way Fincher tells the story is like the, the, you know, the first half of this movie is this murder mystery. And uh, depending on how one feels about Nick, you might be thinking, I hope he didn't do it. And by the end of the movie, when you find out how nefarious the wife is, by the end of the movie, you think some people might think, geez, I wish he did it as or, you know, because because she just because she's evil and maybe she's, you know, from a villain point of view, maybe she doesn't deserve to uh, she d d doesn't deserve to be free. But like the movie, like I can't think of another movie that. That comes come so far 180 as far as you know what what an audience wants to happen, and yeah, because yeah, like uh, it's weird to have a, a huge twist in the middle of a movie. So many movies will have the twist in the the final act or the last five minutes, but like there's like another you know like 70 minutes to go or something when when that twist comes. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we, we also introduced three more characters right here in the middle uh, of all of this. The, the first of which is Tanner Bolt, Tyler Perry. I don't know how familiar you are with Tyler Perry's work, Kurt, but I, of course I know him from the Medea stuff. It's hard not to know him from that, but I've seen him in other things. But the thing I will always say about Tyler Perry is that he gives very true and emotional performances. And the man's work ethic is unbelievable. He churns out so much work. I mean, he does like four shows a year and all this kind of stuff and movies, you know, at the Yang. And I love that they threw him in there as the, you know, high priced super defense attorney, Johnny Cochran type is what he's supposed to be, but a little less theatrics and a little more like, I know how to work the system for you, you know, kind of guy. And I, I love when we meet him and, I, and the conversation he has with Affleck just sitting on a bench in the office, he's like, Oh, I'm in, I'm way in, I'm already on this, you know, and he's, he's got, he's got his sources on his little Blackberry and all this stuff. I, I love the introduction of that character as Nick finally gets somebody besides his sister who's on his side. Oh yeah. Tyler, Tyler Perry is, I think he should have been up for an Oscar for this. Cause I, I remember again, going into this movie totally blind. I had no idea who was in it. And then all of a sudden this lawyer comes in and it's like, is that, that's not, Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry in a Fincher movie? It's like, yeah. what's he going for? And apparently on the commentary, like Tyler Perry is, you know, I haven't seen any, I haven't seen any of like, you know, his canon, like his, his, his day job. But, um, he, you know, it's like a, it's a whole other world of, uh, of, uh, of success that, you know, he's done. And when he got the call from Fincher, even like Tyler Perry's a smart guy. And he said, are you sure you want me to do this? Um, and, but Fincher knew what he, exactly what he was doing. Cause apparently the character in the book is a little bit more of like, a like, a, like maybe closer, like Tony Shalhoub and a man who wasn't there, more of a, yeah. a cold hearted lawyer. But in this, it's like, he's, he's a very kind of warm, friendly, like a guy who would be on, you know, Fox news or CNN to talk about legal cases on, on TV. Cause he's very personable. And it's like, you know, it's it, it a little bit reminds me of, you know, better call Saul where maybe he has one kind of, you know, this persona where you, you know, you maybe you think he's charming or a bullshitter but at the end of the day you know he is a lawyer and it turns out he actually is really you know he's he's really good at this yeah he's got people he's got he's very much better call Saul he's he's kind of a schmoozer and he's sort of throwing you off with all of his yada yada and this and that the the character in the movie is but he's really smart and he's really sharp and he and you can tell he's kind of gets off on the idea of like something ain't right here and I gotta figure out what you know and and you're right the book in the book he's a lot colder he's not nearly as fun and it's it's an improvement I think in the movie here with the character when you get this guy who's got so much charisma and I think that's what Fincher latched onto with Tyler Perry is like the say what you will about the dude and the kind of work he does. You can't doubt that the energy just flows out of him. And he, yeah. he is just a friendly presence, even though he's in this profession that you automatically distrust yeah. because of what he does, but he makes you sort of feel okay about it. And that's, that's the, the cool part of the Tanner Bolt character. Uh, that and at the end of the movie, he gets the best line and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get yeah. there. Uh, we also meet Amy's ex-boyfriend, Tommy O'Hara. And in the book, this is a lot more you know, fleshed out. They do a great job, I think, in the one scene with the guy here. And what we find out is that Amy falsely accused him of sexual assault and planted evidence on him and around his house and really ruined his life because 
as he puts it, man, she took over my life. She annexed me. And when I said, I can't deal with somebody managing me like this, I can't do that and pushed her away. It set her off and she set him up and ruined him. And he, I mean, he can't work anywhere. He can't do anything. And what he says to Nick at the, at the end of it, it's like, all I saw on the TV was when I saw her with you, it was like, well, there's our Amy. She graduated from <laughs> rape to murder. Uh-huh. And I, and the look on Affleck's face, it's like, oh, shit, he's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great great one scene performance by a, a massively underrated character actor, Scoot McNary, who was, I think, he, yes. I think, I'm pretty sure he was in Ben Affleck's Argo. But uh, he's always good. And he is great in this scene where, like you hear, I think I think you go in, you hear that this guy was accused of rape. So you kind of you have this image in your head of like, oh, this must be some kind of skeevy bastard. And he seems, and then you meet him, he seems like just a perfectly normal, charming, uh, guy, good humored guy. But his life was ruined by this uh, by this woman who played kind of played on you know the, this this dark legal angle of something that's hard to disprove and 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 stuff. And it shows that that's what that's the that's the kind of game she plays. Yes, she looks for these blanks again that she can sort of latch onto and make them into whatever she wants. As much as Amy goes on and on about how she can remake herself into whatever she wants, she built her perfect husband in Nick, and she tried to build one before. And and what we find out, she's actually done it a couple of times before. And it's almost like the sociopath practicing, right? It's sort of scary to think about that she just built herself up to this. Whether she was consciously doing that or not, it's sort of the some of the questions of the story. But we meet that, and then the last one we get is uh, Desi Collins, her famous, super rich, not famous, her super rich ex-stalker. And in the book, there's a lot more layer to that character. And he's got a mother who's very much a big piece of this. And they, they cut her out for time's sake, which makes a lot of sense here. But I thought it was, again, just just great casting to grab somebody like Neil Patrick Harris, who no one dislikes when you see him on something. He's funny. Even when he plays an awful character like Barney, who's just a total Lothario on yeah. that uh, you know, How I Met Your Mother show, which I wasn't a fan of, but I've seen him in enough. And he's he's a, he's a meme in of himself. And, you know, yeah, for me, he's Doogie Howser and you know, all these other things that he's played, right? Uh, but you see him and you give him a little bit of sinisterness. And when he and Affleck meet, at, when Affleck's on his way back from New York, and they're just standing across from each other in that little gantry way of that house. And it, like you, you see Neil Patrick Harris is giving Affleck nothing as he's like asking him questions and he's told, and it's just a, such a cold ice performance. But then you look behind his eyes and you can see his wheels are spinning. Like he knows something's up. It's, it's a great performance. Oh, again, I thought I thought him, Tyler Perry and Neil Patrick Harris should have been up for Oscars for this because Fincher was just casting all these these guys like against type like crazy. Like Neil Patrick Harris, I mean, you know, he's a he's a sitcom guy. He does Broadway. The last thing like you're just you're not going to expect him to be, you know, this movie's, you know, second psychopath. Because, again, Mm -hmm. the kind of a twist is it turns out he's not just like a sad stalker. It's like he's a really dedicated uh uh, crazy stalker. He's like the realistic version of what is it, Christian Grey from Fifty yeah. Shades of Grey. It's like there's like the, the the way that movie depicts him as some kind of romantic hero. This is what he'd really be like. Yes, yes, a recluse who's got you know unbelievable wealth and access to things and can live this secluded lifestyle. And if he got what he wanted, it would be love it, pet it, call it George. You know, <laughs> he would he would keep someone. 
like imprisoned in his house if he could, you know, and, 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 and the thing is about the character and the thing that you really got more out of the book is that he doesn't realize he's doing anything bad. Like he, he's so mentally, he's got such mental issues that he, he doesn't know. And that's why he's so easily manipulated by Amy and really everybody else, including the mother character that's again, not in the movie. But I, I love how that we introduce all this stuff. And what you're doing now is you've spent a third of the movie convincing us that Ben Affleck has killed this woman. And now you're, you realize like, well, no, he didn't. And she set him up. And now you're watching Ben Affleck figure out how did she set me up? And he's starting to realize, Oh God, it's even deeper than I knew. It's not just me. It's everybody in her life. And that's what makes this so twisted, you know? And the part of the movie here in the middle, though, that I I guess it just bothers me because it does lean into the kind of Arkansas stereotype rube thing when she goes to the campgrounds and the Ozarks or whatever and all that stuff. That part always just, I don't know, it's for somebody who's as so smartly orchestrated herself in this way, she makes some really dumb mistakes in in front of people that you just don't make mistakes in front of. And maybe that's, that's to show us that she's not as smart as she thinks she is. Oh yeah. She's definitely someone who's, she's book smart. Like she's read every book on, uh, you know, on, uh, true crime and how to set up this kind of murder, but she, she doesn't know how to deal with, uh, with, she, she doesn't really know how to deal with people. She's been in, you know, seclusion. She's probably talked like a circle of like maybe three people in that town. So she hasn't really had, she has had no encounters with, uh, people that might be trying to deceive her. She, 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 she kind of becomes, she becomes comfortable because she also thinks that her plan is so foolproof that there's no way it could go wrong. Uh, like, and her, <laughs> like her plan going right is going to lead to her suicide, oddly enough. But she's, she's so comfortable in this point that it doesn't occur to her to maybe not leave her entire nest egg taped around her, uh, in a, in a fanny pack around her at all times. And that, of course, leads to them, uh, you know, stealing. Yeah. Yeah, I, lo- I love how this this uh, character comes in and says, hey, you're lucky. Other people do you a lot worse than us. We're not even yeah. trying to hurt you. And I was like, well, that doesn't make her feel any better, I'm sure. <laughs> and, but it also is a twist for the audience. Of like, If you were remotely rooting for her to get away with it, now you know she can't. At least not the way she was ta- thinking about doing. And now you got to figure out what to do. And at that point, she's already made the decision. I'm not killing myself. He can just go down for it because this is working better than I thought because the public <laughs> perception is getting bad. So she rips that off the thing and throws it away like, hmm, I don't have to kill him. you know. And what I love is that she thinks she's so smart. And the 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 woman that you know knocks her over with her boyfriend or whatever, they marked her from the beginning. Like, you're not from New Orleans. You're faking. We can tell something's up. You did, you're running from something and you clearly don't want anybody to know. So they made her out easy. And that's what she realizes. Somebody that wants to be a criminal gets around real criminals and they have no idea what they're doing. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit of the like, you know, first couple seasons of Breaking Bad thing of like, you know, it's one thing to yeah. plan this stuff out. But once you actually face to face with, you know, a, a real gangster, it's like, you know, you have, you're, you're totally unprecedented for, for someone like, you know, Walter White, or in this case, Amy. Yeah, like when Walt gets held up in Tuco's shack. Like, he has no idea how to get out of that. You know, like it's, it's only Hank showing up that saves him at that point. Anyway, but yeah, that, that's that's a great, great call for that. But we, we learn that she's got a backup plan after she gets ripped off. Um, she she is popping quarters in a phone. You're like, who in the world is this woman talking to? And we didn't, I didn't see it coming that like she would call the Desi character, the Neil, Patrick's char- Neil Patrick Harris character back into this thing to come and rescue her. And 
I love that it doesn't tell us what she told him to convince him that you got to trust me, you know, but it's got to be some version of this. But she has to also convince him, like, I faked it because he deserves it. And the fact that he said, OK, I understand is just shows you how psychotic he is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Again, like the twist is that turns out there's two psychopaths in this movie. Because like any sane person would be like, I'm going to call 911 because I found Amy. And he's going to yeah. call the cops. I'm going to call Nick. It's like free, you know, come, this man's going to be arrested for murder. I'm going to clear his name. He's like, he doesn't, I don't think, like the fact that she doesn't want to go home says, well, then I can do whatever I want with her. She's, she's, she's afraid of leaving or whatever, whatever it is, I'm going to just, I'm completely going to take advantage of her. Yeah, I mean, he, he even says to her, like, we're, we're past that now. You got to let him go. We're, yeah. we're going to get you. We're going to get you. You know, there's a gym next door. You can have this. I'll bring you a lot of clothes. You can get yourself looking like you're supposed to look. Like, he's got his own trophy wife now. The way she builds people, he's building his perfect image of whatever she is. And what, what you realize, and it, I think it comes through a little clearer in the book, what you realize is that Amy is obsessed with this idea that everybody wants her to be something that she's not, kind of stemming back from her parents and the whole Amazing Amy stories and all that stuff and, and how she's dealt with that. And she realizes that she thinks all these men want her to be something that she's not. And really the only one who didn't was Nick. And everybody she's run to since entraps her more. Like she, she makes up the story that he has, you know, kept her in there and has, you know, been abusing her and tied her on the bed and all this stuff. But he does kidnap her. I mean, essentially, I mean, she kind of asks him to, but he does put her in, in lockdown. And she's like, well, the only person who didn't do that was my stupid husband that I tried to frame. Well, okay, I guess I'll go back to him. And that's when, when they're watching the thing on TV and this is, this is a great Tyler Perry and Carrie Coon scene too, when they're trying to, to drill Ben Affleck before Celia Ward tears him apart on national TV, which I love Celia Ward as, as Barbara Walters or whatever she's supposed yeah. to be here in this movie. And they keep throwing gummy bears at him when he says something stupid. And he says, no, trust me. I know exactly how to play this. I'm going to wear this tie. She bought me that she knows I hate. I'm going to with this watch she bought me. I'm going to say things that will speak to her. And he plays her like a fiddle. And it's neat. It's neat to watch Affleck do that and to watch uh, Rosamund Pike as Amy respond to that, to that TV while Neil Patrick Harris is totally like trying to take her dessert away and trying to control her and stuff. Oh yeah, that is one of the most fun moments uh, of this movie is that whole scene. First off, I love right before that interview starts, Celia Ward is such <laughs> She has this look on his face, this smile. It's like, that must be, that's the look, you know, Captain Nahab has when he thinks he's going to get Moby Dick. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm going to nail you so hard in this. And of course, the twist is, he turns out he does really well in the interview. And I haven't read the book, but I did go and uh, I remember seeing people were talking about, there's a chunk of the book, they should have showed this in the, in the movie, where in the book, Nick goes and watches this interview Hugh Grant did on The Tonight Show in the 90s. Hugh Grant mm -hmm. was involved in this really embarrassing sex scandal involving a prostitute right when he was doing really good in his career and it's like it would have this is like this is the kind of thing that'll destroy it but he went on to the tonight show and he was completely self-deprecating despite doing a pretty scummy thing he was self-deprecating he was disarming he was very funny and it completely saved him and it's like and the idea that nick is going to try and capture that it's like all yeah. if i just if i just come clean if i'm perfectly honest uh, that'll completely save me, which it would have if the cops didn't uh, bust in right away. But it's one of the best bits in one of the best bits in any Fincher movie is where he looks into the camera and he says, "I've I've taken myself to the woodshed 
over this. And it's like he's looking right in the lens. It's like just to say specifically, I was in the shed. I found all the stuff you bought. And mm-hmm. then he does that thing with the, ch- you know, the fingers over the chin, which I still can't tell is that if he's just messing around or if he still has some affection for her. Either way, it's a, you know, a great performance Nick gives in that scene. Oh, it is. And, and that's what Amy's the one that rats him out of the cops anonymously. Right. You know, she calls up and says, oh, you might want to go. There's something going on behind this woman's house. That's where they find the treasure trove. And and then when they get the, the results back and all this stuff about she was pregnant, all this, that's when they, you know, they finally lay it on him like you're under arrest. You know, and at that point, OK, we're at a different spot. You know, the, the movie has changed and the clock has really run, is running down now. He's got to figure out what to do. And, you know, Tyler Perry's got guys out there looking for her, you know, and they can't find her anywhere. And that's when she's also made the decision, like, I can't stay here locked up with this crazy <laughs> stalker guy. So she goes through the motions for several weeks. She loses weight. She cuts her hair. She gets, you know, all dolled up and all this stuff. And she's dressed in all this skimpy clothes, eating breakfast with him. And he's off to do his Christian gray job or whatever. I think it's a great call to call him that because it's really how he's written. And she, she knows where all the cameras are. And so she does that whole fake thing. Like she's been thrown against the wall and she violates herself with the wine bottle in the privacy of the bathroom. So it looks like she's, you know, bleeding and all this crazy stuff. And it's like, watching the sociopath go through the motions. And then when she seduces him and, and this is, this is not the way this goes in the book In the book, she knocks him out and then just kills him in his sleep. Basically in the movie, and I think it's a great move by Fincher to like, no, we're putting you in all white lingerie. <laughs> you get, you, Neil Patrick Harris is going to be on top of you and you're going to slit his throat and he's going to bleed all over the both of you. And it is like this grotesque, the music, all of it. It just turns into a freaking horror movie all of a sudden. Oh, that is, that is, that's, that's, that's definitely the most shocking thing in the movie because it's like, you know, it's a Fincher movie. You might go in thinking Fincher, it's going to go dark and there's going to be murder. But I think at the halfway point, I kind of thought this isn't going to be that kind of movie. It's not going to be violent. It's not going to go in Dragon Tattoo or Seven uh, Directions. And then all of a sudden pulls out a box cutter and slices his throat. And first there's a little trickle of blood, but then he takes a breath, which draws up more blood. And it's just a geyser of blood. And I think, I think, and, I think it kind of fade. I can't remember if it like fades. Yeah, it's like these black quick. flashes in and out. Yeah. He'll do that again in Dragon Tattoo. But yeah, same kind of thing. Oh yeah, and the music is just blaring that you know the Trent Reznor music like uh, like it tends to do in Fincher's movies, and it is just I'm just like stunned. And she's and she's deliberately covering herself in the blood, which is so disgusting. And again, with her you know violating herself and and making you know kind of acting in front of the cameras without the narration. It's extra disturbing because you have no I, – I, I still have no idea what she's planning until until she actually uh, kills him. And it's a great bit of acting where she's kind of putting on a performance of being horrified. And then she does this thing where she kind of just like flicks her hair back to like straighten it out yeah. and completely goes like stone-faced of like, okay, time to go to work. And then, you know, then she goes looking for the car keys or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and the difference too, and if you notice the little, little inner titles or whatever about, there's several days between when she kills him and then when she winds up back in Carthage. Yeah. Missouri. She's got on scrubs. She's still covered in his blood. All of this mess. And she, she pulls up in the driveway and he's, you know, asleep on the couch and he, he gets up to go see what the commotion is. And I love how she just falls in his arms and he kisses her like, you freaking, like he lets her know, like, <laughs> 
you are, I cannot believe you have yeah. rolled back up like this. And, and this is the part of the movie where I go like, wow, would the FBI really screw the local cops over like this? And at the time I, I poked holes in it. I was like, there's no way anybody would believe this garbage story this woman has. And Boney doesn't, but because it's been such a public case and it's such egg on the face, <laughs> I would believe the feds would go, y'all need to shut this down and walk away. Right now, this guy's got mental problems and we can pin it all on him. Let's just get out of this before it become, we become the news cycle, you know, and that's, that's another commentary by Fincher of, Hey, we're not interested in the truth anymore. She's alive. He didn't do it. Move on. Oh yeah. Here's where we come to. Like, I like to think like the first act is everything up until the, uh, like there's the first act, second act. And I think the th I say the third act ends when she comes home. That's yeah. when it feels like any other movie would end at this point like you could if you really wanted to you could have cut the credits at, at that point maybe because like I, I was going to think either it ends with the dark ending of like he gets he goes to jail and gets lethal injection and she dies and her plan succeeds but when she pulls up in the car uh it's this really weird thing because like the whole movie at this point like the first half is this murder mystery as fincher says and then the second half is this like surrealist thriller murder mystery is the audience is trying to figure it out when it's a thriller the audience sees everything. It's plate spinning. And it's about, I know one of these plates is going to hit the ground. It's just a matter of which is which. But then comes this fourth act where she comes home. And at that point, you know, the, my brain just completely shuts down. It's like, I, for a million dollars, I couldn't tell you where this movie is going. Because it, it, and it, like, I love how they enter the fourth act on a laugh where she says, you bitch. And she goes into yeah. this ultra dramatic pose where fincher was going for the, the gone with it's the gone with the wind post yes and it's like yes. as fincher says this is going to be on every magazine cover this is going to be time magazines you know picture of the year and like that's like amy's specifically going for that because like she's she's improvising a new plan now oh yeah and, and you watch him just go how am i supposed to deal with this what am i supposed to do to, you know to to Nick's credit, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't know what's coming next. And, you know, she, she comes in and she's like, I need to make sure you're not wearing a wire. So she makes him get in the shower with it, where she's washing Desi's blood off of her. How twisted is this? And he's standing there going like, I am leaving you. You are nuts. You are a crazy person. After what, not only what you put me through, but you just murdered somebody in the hell. <laughs> and she's sitting there going like, no, 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 no. You wanted me to do that. And this is the sociopath blaming you for their crimes again. You told me I watched you. That's the man I fell in love with on the, the you know the TV show. You told me what you wanted me to do, and I came right back here. So don't you dare think we're going to get off with this. And then I love when you know he's tucking her into bed. Basically, he's like, "Was there ever a baby?" And she's like, "There can be." And he's like, <laughs> "No, are you?" And he like goes sitting in his room. He's got the cat, and he's just sort of like sitting in a chair waiting for her to come kill him because he doesn't know what to do. And what you realize is you watch this poor man who has who has done some dumb things, all right? And, and no doubt. But he's also been put through hell that no one deserves. And he doesn't know where it's coming next. He has no idea. And he gets to the next morning and she's like making crepes. You know, and she's got the whole plan of like, now you have to admit that you did all this and then I'll admit this. And you know, if we do this right, it'll all go well. And he's going like, you are nuts. There's no way. And it plays out longer in the book 
about how he's like written this manuscript. He's like, I'm going to tell the whole world. I'm dropping it to the press <laughs> that you, you did all this or whatever. And then he changes his mind because she's dropped the pregnancy thing on him. And, and it works out similar here. He doesn't have the book planned or whatever. He's just going to leave her an outer essentially on, on TV, the way he's been done. And for whatever reason, he changes his mind. And that what's, what's weird is again, Amy has, has built up this idea that all these men were going to do all these awful things to her and wanted her to be things she couldn't be. And the one guy who didn't want her to be anything but herself, she, you know, put through hell and now she's come back to him. And the funny thing is she made up stories about him wanting to kill her. And now he fantasizes about killing her. Like, I wish I could just crack your head open and see what's there. You know, and I'm like, well, we've just come real full circle here. Oh, yeah. And like you said, the book goes into more detail. As a movie, what I love is this happens so fast. Like it's only like it's, it's got to be less than 20 minutes, maybe oh, yeah. 15. It happens so fast. And I think the audience, at least I was, it's like, well, it being a, any kind of movie or thriller, the villain has to get some kind of comeuppance or like there has to be a re- some kind of like a some sort of satisfying resolution to this. And you just keep waiting for it for the entire 15 minutes and they keep throwing twist upon twist and that great scene with them in the uh, in the closet where she says mm. that she's pregnant and it's, you know, that when she says, you know, I won't even have to tell our kids. I won't have to train them to hate you. They'll do that all on their own. And she, and he slams her against the wall and, you know, drops the C-bomb and it's – and that, 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 that is a really important moment because the fact that he gets violent with her. It, yeah. Again, it calls back to that the, the diary because it makes you think, is she doing that? Is is that just the way he was, or is this just him reacting to, you know, he's reacting to a movie villain now? And like, it's is it appropriate or not? And she kind of she kind of says it. It's like you know, we're basically we're we're both scum, and we kind of deserve each other, uh, which is, and yeah, she says like why? And he says why would you want this? All we do, all we ever did was <laughs> is is end up resenting and, and mistrusting and hating each other. And she says that's marriage. And it's like, oof, oof, that is like that. That's Fincher, yeah. obviously, and Gillian Flynn talking there. But that's like, that's a, yeah. that's a hell of a note to end on. Yeah, but that's what I mean. It's like Fincher's going to make you hate marriage now. I mean, yeah. that, that's that's the statement. You're going to hate the media. You're going to hate your obsession with true crime, and you're going to hate marriage by the <laughs> end of this thing. And she, but you know, the thing is about Amy, for as twisted a sociopath as she is, she's not entirely wrong. You know, he's not wrong either that like all we've done is ruin each other. And she goes, yeah, but really, we're not good for anybody else either. Can you imagine? Really? (laughs) Like, look what I did. You know, I sliced the throat of this guy that was obsessed with me. I mean, he probably was never going to hurt me. He wanted to control me. But, you know, when you talk to me through the screen, through the TV like that, I just knew that you knew, you know, and that's what I wanted. And I was like, well, you're psychos in love. Congratulations. And that's my question to you because it's not it's left in the book. It's open too. what do you think happens to these? These two people. Tyler Perry has the best line when he calls them the most fucked up people he's ever met, and he specializes in fucked up people. Yeah. And he kind of lays out like, well, you know, you franchised your bar, which we've seen the bars like exploding now because it's a famous place, you know. And they, they've actually they have financial security they never had before, but they're also totally distrusting of each other. What do you think happens to these two people? Well, well, well. Tyler Perry lays the groundwork for that. It's that with that great bit of like, you know, franchise the bar. You're going to get a best selling book out of this movie of the week. You should probably thank her, but don't piss her off. Yeah. And that's, and that, and that leads into, you know, of, uh, it's, it's, it is, they do, very, it's very, it is very ambiguous. They leave it up to the audience to, 
decide what they're going to do. Because and uh, this happens in like the last ninety seconds. That it is the it's the only moment in the movie that gets me emotional is where Affleck uh, where Nick is talking to Margot about I think I'm going to stay with her and she's literally sobbing on the ground. Yeah. I can't let you. I can't watch you spend the next eighteen years playing house with that thing. Yeah, and she's like, and he's like, and. It happens so fast. There's almost no time to process what what is going on in his head. Because like when he, when they're doing that, you know the uh, the the um, Ellen Abbott interview, you're like, there's that pause when he's like, you know, we're partners in crime, and you're like getting ready to say, you're getting ready for him to be like, and she, you know, and she's uh, evil, and she's gonna he's gonna spill the beans, and he doesn't. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna cave and just do what mm-hmm. she says, and. Uh, and it's like, so what do they do in the future? Well, it looks like they're going to have a kid, which is going to be the most disturbed child in the history of uh, of children with these two as their parents. Um, that's that, that's one way. There is the possibility they might patch things up and and <laughs> maybe they, they're able to live together. But I think on, I keep thinking that uh, if there was going to be a sequel to this, it would be that he actually does kill her or she more likely ends up killing him. But it's like. I don't see, like they're not really going to end happily ever after, which is that last moment, which is a, this beautiful mirroring of the opening scene where it's a POV of Nick looking at her, just talking about, you know, oh, I always think about cracking your head open and, you know, wondering what's going inside. What are you thinking about? You know, what, what are we, you know, what are we doing to each other? And then when we see the last scene, it's that same shot where in the first scene, she kind of looks up lovingly at him. In the second part, she kind of whips her head up and he kind of mm-hmm. jerks his hand away like afraid. Like, like don't don't mess with her. And then landing on that line of what will we do? And then just right. fading to black and leading, ending on this note of uh, one might call it anticlimactic, but it's just it is just fascinating as hell. And when my, my brother, he's, I wish to Christ I could have seen this in, in the theater. When my brother saw this in the theater. He just when that when they faded to black. Because you're, you're kind of thinking it's going to go on another 20 minutes. And then it fades to black. He said he just – his head was in his lap, just like completely deflated, just couldn't move, just sat there during the credits going, oh, like like he didn't know didn't know what to do with himself. And that's – you know, and that's that's all I told, that Fincher's doing. I told, you, I told you, man, I walked out of the theater with my wife, like holding hands, looking at each other, going like, we're, we're cool, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like we had to like tell each other like – we're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, it's one of those movies that makes you do that. And that, that happens so many times in Fincher movies, right? Like you walk out of seven. I, t- I think I told that story when we did that, that show this years ago, Kurt, that I walked out of there with my friend and we both were just like, I, I need to say something, but I don't know what to say, yeah. you know? And that's what, and the book leaves you that way. But I think Fincher leaves you that way too, on purpose, like with a, just a big, dang, you know? And then it's like, what, where have we gone in this, this whole thing? Yeah. And you realize Nick is stuck and he feels like it, it's, it's played over in this movie and it's a little more in the book that their father was a lousy father. So that last why they were so close to their mother, he and his sister. And you know, he, he goes on and on about like, I'm not going to be my dad to my kid. I'm going to live up to my responsibility. I'll deal with, you know, her and all this other stuff to, to do this, you know, which is another terrible reason to keep a marriage together, but you know, whatever, that's another day on Donahue, literally. But you know, he's telling her this stuff and you realize that he, Amy wanted him to be this perfect man. He just wasn't, you know, 
And then she made him out to be this awful killer that he also wasn't. And at the end of it, all he can think about is, I just really want to kill you, but I probably can't. And it's like, wow, just how, how dark and depressing is that? And I like that it ends on a big down note. This whole movie's a friggin' down note. The poster's gray for a reason. And I think it leaves you with that sense of gray. And that's, I think that's one of the genius moves of the script. And it's uh, some of the genius move of the director too. Oh yeah, that's that's the thing about Fincher. Every I think pretty much every movie he's done ends on an and he knows how to end a movie. I always think like Spielberg is always the best at opening a movie, like the very first thing you see. Fincher's really good at the last thing you see is something like that last bit in Dragon Tattoo, the last twenty seconds. That just that bit where she throws the leather jacket in the garbage can hmm. that she probably spent you know ten grand on, whatever it is. It just says everything you need to know about how her heart is just broken. And just ends on this note where you're just sad. <laughs> and and then Gone Girl ends on this note of where the audience is, you know, is probably either frustrated or maybe some people are like, no, maybe some people are, are they completely understand, depending on how their relationship is. No, oh, absolutely. Maybe we could get Fincher to help Stephen King with an ending, you know, after all these years. <laughs> that would be nice. Well, Kurt, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Gone Girl? Well, Gone Girl starts as a mystery where the audience is wondering whether or not our main character killed his wife and maybe hoping he didn't. And by the end of the movie, I'm betting a lot of the audience is wishing he did kill her. And that's just one of the many twists Fincher pulls with this film. I went into this movie with no real expectation. I knew nothing of the story, the cast, never saw a trailer. So it was that best kind of movie experience where you just go in totally blind. Doesn't happen very often. And I hated every second of this movie. And by hated, I mean loved. Because like the best of David Fincher's work, this movie just dug right into the scab of humanity with a hot knife and dug up all this rot and pus to show human beings at their absolute worst. And I'd say nobody is is better at that than Fincher. Stellar performances from top to bottom in this cast, especially Rosamund Pike as one of the all-time great movie villains. Ben Affleck as someone where... It's kind of tough to decide if he's the hero of this movie or in some ways is he just another villain. And nothing but great supporting performances from Neil Patrick Harris, Kim Dickens, Tyler Perry, Carrie Coon, Scoot McNary, Patrick Fugit, and so on. Everyone kills it in this movie. A brilliant script by the author of the book, Gillian Flynn. It's a story that's just hilariously devastating to watch unfold. I can't think of too many other movies that are so much fun to watch and so hard to watch at the exact same time. And it's going to go down as a classic for that reason. I would say Gone Girl is David Fincher's masterpiece, but he's got like four or five movies duking it out for that for that spot. But this is truly some of his best work as a filmmaker. And it gets an extra large popcorn from me. Yeah, hilariously devastating, I think, is the phrase in that. And you nailed it with that. I remember distinctly, again, the experiences with the book, seeing this movie, having seen it a few times now, and every time I watch it, even now knowing the twist in it, it's just like something like Usual Suspects, where, or Seven, you know, I know how this is going to end, but I just want to go along for the ride. I want to be taken on the emotional trip that this is, because it's not a roller coaster. It is a... It's something where you're getting jerked around left and right. 
kind of like the shark in the opening scene of Jaws. But you, you don't, even if you know how it's going to end at the end, you still want to be there for it. You'll want to be there for every blood curdling scream <laughs> of it. Uh, again, the cast here is perfect. Um, you know, we talked about it in Eyes Wide Shut that part of the big problem of that was Tom Cruise was just all wrong for that role. And, you know, Kidman was fine, but he was not it. I don't think you could have done better with this. I mean, I, I you can think of other actors, maybe better actors to play other of these parts, but I think everybody here gives an outstanding performance and makes it fun. You got Carrie Coon and Tyler Perry to keep you kind of laughing through all of this darkness. <laughs> and then you've got Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck doing a good revolutionary road, just absolutely clawing each other's eyes out, even though they're on screen together so little. And that's <laughs> what's amazing is they still maintain such great chemistry in this. Um, this is a fantastic one. It's one of my favorite ventures. It definitely, it wrestles in that top era of like, is it, is it the best one? Um, and you could make an argument for this along with a few others. Uh, definitely a bonafide class. I do think, again, in, in 10, 15 years, they're still going to be talking about this one uh, because the book's the same way people still talking about it because it was so topical when it came out and it still is today. And I think this is an absolute slam dunk of a movie and definitely extra large popcorn. And glad we got to talk about it here, uh, Kurt, in, uh, in 2021. So thanks again for being here. Tell folks how they can follow you and all of your great stuff uh, with Fabish Factor and your uh, unbelievably amazing letterbox page. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, you can you can find uh, more of my reviews, uh, mainly in the printed form or text form on my Letterbox page, letterbox.com slash Fabish Factor, or search for Kurt Fabish. And you can find me on the Fabish Factor film group on Facebook, where I like to try to get into discussions more or less like the one we just had here. And there is the Fabish Factor film podcast you can find on iTunes with a... Uh, infrequent release schedule uh we'll see how that goes uh, one of these days but i'm always pumping out movie reviews doing these movie challenges it was just challenged to watch a specific set of films in uh, in january just random movies like they're completely random movie the favorite by yorgos lanthimos and uh, california split by robert altman and just trying to watch as many new trying to expose myself to as much new stuff as i can so you can find me uh on facebook and letterboxd and itunes yeah, it is a complete film watchers, you know, library to read Kurt stuff on Letterbox. Several of us have said that, and I'll, I'll echo it again here. So always good to have you on here, Filmstrip, and to talk about another very interesting and detailed movie with you here. For folks, you can follow the show on social media at Filmstrip Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That's where you'll find all of our show posts. You'll also find links to our letterbox page, which has the full listing of everything we've ever done. If you go to filmstrip.com, that'll take you to our anchor.fm distribution site where you can find the show on Apple, Spotify, Google, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast. Leave us a positive review. Share the show with others. We appreciate the support. So for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.